every single thing you see in this room from computer screens to a microphone to a recorder to a wristwatch to glasses that you're looking through every single one of those things at one point was impossible didn't exist microphones didn't exist at one point glasses didn't exist at one point hats didn't exist at one point the obvious thing are cell phones and monitors those didn't exist and then what happened one day along the way the sum total of experience and and need and invention and technology made it so that oh we've got a way to record voices now we've got a microphone and we're able to record it and then play it back and when that happened the first time people lost their minds like that was oh my god this is crazy people thought it was you know you you're capturing the soul or you know this is the devil's work or whatever it is and then now it's commonplace you don't ever think about when was the last time when one of your podcasts you got it out and you just sat there in amaze looked at the microphone you, can you believe we can record voices you don't even think about it oh i i think that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's amazing that i can get these wires <laughs> I don't take nothing for granted. Well, then you're a special I'm a case. Old school dude, man. <laughs> but that's the crazy thing is that every single thing that surrounds us at one point was impossible until that's, when? Until someone made it point, possible. Mike, that's right. So, right. remember the SATs? Remember the SATs? The inverse logic. So, if everything that's possible today was impossible first, that means that everything that's impossible today, everything that's impossible today, if you base it on history, the statistics and the data of history means everything that's impossible today is on the trajectory of becoming what? Possible. possible. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Busman. And this week's episode explains why for decades I've been so happy doing what I do. I wake up and almost every day get to meet somebody I've never met before and learn something I never knew. It was that way at a college when I got my first job as a reporter for the Miami Herald. It was that way when I traveled around the world on buses and trains for roughly 10 years without a home. It was like that when I get a call from Esquire magazine asking me to interview Jeff Bezos or Leonardo DiCaprio or Mary Barra, first female CEO at GM. And it's like that now when I sit at Larry King's breakfast table every morning. You never know who's gonna come by and say hello and where that hello is gonna take you. Last September, I met Mick Ebeling at the Life is Beautiful Festival in downtown Las Vegas. Mick is one of those people who makes you stop and think about what you're doing with each and every tick of your life's clock. He started out running a production company and as you'll hear, People called him to see if his company could pull off ideas that seemed impossible. He kept saying, yeah, we can do that, because his company needed the work to stay in business. And then he was forced to figure out just how to pull off these impossible requests. And he did. That was the spirit that set him off to create Not Impossible Labs. First, he got a team of eclectic people to put together a device that enabled a graffiti artist lying immobile in bed with ALS to create art using only his eyes. Then, Mick's team came up with a way to 3D print prosthetic arms for people in the South Sudan who'd had their limbs blown off in the country's civil war. And at the end of this talk, 
you'll hear about Mick's latest triumph. A device that can stop the tremors afflicting people who have Parkinson's disease. This device will be available to the world sometime over the next few months. If you know somebody with Parkinson's disease, you're going to want to know more about this. And normally, I would direct you straight to Not Impossible Labs through notimpossible.com. That way, you'll be able to communicate with Mick and his team directly. But you can also reach out to me about this through calfussman.com. That way, I'll get a chance to pass on the connection to Mick. I have a feeling this is going to make me feel really good. And let me tell you why. Not many people know this, but for a time I worked in the emergency room at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis. I had just gotten an EMT license that qualified me to work on ambulances, but I was recruited to work in the emergency room and I had some amazing moments there. That's because when you work in an emergency room, you can see people transform. Some come in with some pretty serious problems and walk out fine after they've been treated only a few hours later. It's a beautiful thing to see somebody come in vulnerable and scared and leave relaxed and grateful. And it's a wonderful feeling to watch that transformation. I'd like to feel like that again. So if you have Parkinson's disease or know someone with Parkinson's disease, please reach out to me and I'll connect you with Mick and Not Impossible Labs. Maybe down the road, I'll be able to visit and shake a hand that is no longer shaking. Let me thank my sponsors, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter, for bringing all this to you. You'll hear more about them in the mid-roll. But for now, let's get straight to the day I showed up at the office of Not Impossible Labs in Venice, California, to sit with Mick Ebeling. You're the production guy, but here we go. <laughs> I wanted to share this with you. So this is my commute every day. This is this is how this is how I get to work every day. I, I skateboard to work. Right? It takes me a whopping five minutes if I take the long route to get to work. There was this friend of mine, so kind of keep that in the back of your head. At the back of his head, he wasn't wearing a helmet and he lost a sense of smell. All right, so just keep that to yourself, right? If, if that's going to happen to anybody, <laughs> it should happen to a friend of Mick. <laughs> All right, go ahead. So that was just one of those things where I was like, wow, that's kind of, that's odd. I never really thought about that. And he's like, you know, we would joke and he's like, it's crazy when I fart, I can't smell it. It's not really good for me and my wife, but you know, it's like, this is great. He's like, I can't taste food. I can't taste anything. And I was like, that's crazy. Cause he hit the back of his head. He lost a sense of smell. And so one of the things I started to think about was like, wait a second. So you don't, you don't smell through your nose. You don't see through your eyes you don't taste with your tongue you don't hear with your ears you do that all with your brain and that was one of those things where it was just kind of this revelation so pause i got obsessed with how people experience music who are deaf and the, the way that the deaf experience music is they will they will stand in front of speakers and they will just receive the vibration do 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 right but it takes it's it's a crime against music because it takes all of the sound and 
balls it up into this kind of low end meatball and it just throws it against your chest, right? So you don't get any of the, the acute kind of subtleties or precision of music or vocals or, or anything like that because it's just all relegated just the low end. And I was like, well, wait a second. If you don't hear with your, my buddy, you don't smell with your nose, you don't see with your eyes, that means you don't hear with your ears, you hear with your brain. So maybe there's a way for us to hack around the broken bits if you're deaf, which the broken bits are your ear, your eardrums, and figure out a new way to get to the brain. And I'm not talking about like bone conduction. I'm talking about like getting to the brain with the musical signal. And so that started this path, this kind of like this obsessive compulsive path of starting to figure out like, oh, what does that look like? And what does that mean? And, and so I, uh, I partnered up with this, you know, a friend of ours who is this kind of one of our, we call him our, one of our mad scientists named Dr. David Petrino. He introduced me to this guy named Patty who introduced me to this like ridiculous genius guy named Daniel Belker. And we ended up crafting this piece of wearable technology that is wristbands, ankle bands, and a vest. And what we did is we embedded them with these little mini vibrating motors. And then we set it up so that wirelessly a song could be broadcast to the wristbands, to the ankle bands, and to the vest. So in the simplest way, you would have the guitars would go to your wrist, the drums would go to your ankles, the vocals would go to like your rib cage, and the bass would go to the base of your spine. And so what we did is we figured out a way to project music. So rather than you just getting hit with a doo, doo, doo in, in your belly, right? Now we've broken up the different parts of the music and sent it to different parts of your body. So now your brain recognizes, oh, that's guitar on my wrist. Oh, that's vocals on my ribs. Oh, that's drums in my, in my ankles. So we've done the work that usually the eardrums send to the brain and the brain has to process oh, man, it. You've bypassed the ears. We've by, we've, we basically used skin and churned skin into an eardrum. And now the brain, which is beautifully, wonderfully, fantastically plastic, it's called neuroplasticity, starts to learn, oh, okay, that's... Guitars at the wrist. That's, that's, that's a guitar. And it's funny because my kids were like, well... Oh, that's Santana. Yeah, exactly. And, then, and my kids were like, well, how do we know that they're hearing the same way that we do? And my answer was, that's not the important part. Like when someone reads... Don Quixote in Spanish, and then it gets translated into English. We're not reading Don Quixote the way that the writer intended it to be Correct. written. It was translated. Now we get an experience around it, but it's our experience, but it's not the right experience. No more is, is like the Spanish version, the right experience. It's just the original experience. So the whole fact that we've now translated music to be received through the skin, now the deaf can experience music. So we took it out to the deaf and they threatened us. What? They threatened us. What? Yeah. They said, we're not giving this back to you. They're like, this, this is the best thing we've ever felt. This was blowing our mind. What do you mean they threatened well, I'm you? Kidding. I mean, I'm kidding. I'm, 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 I'm being oh, okay. facetious. I was going like, well, no, well, they threatened well, us like, there's no way we're giving this back to you. You're going to have to peel this off our bodies because this is like blowing our mind. This is the most incredible thing ever. And so we're like, all right, we're, we're onto something. So we started taking it out to the deaf community and the deaf community started to experience this. And they were like, this is incredible. They could sit there 
And one of the best stories ever was we, we took this to South by Southwest. And you know how when a band plays and the band's like, oh, thank you, good night. And then they walk off stage. Then they just, they cue some music and it just kind of plays in the background. Right. Yeah. Well, our little deaf posse that was over on the side, the band stopped playing. And then all of the people who could hear, like went to their cell phones and started, you know, just checking their phones or doing whatever. Our deaf posse of 20 people over on the side, the music didn't stop for them. So they were, they just kept dancing. They were going. <laughs> and afterwards, it was so funny. Uh, there was this, this wonderful, um, this wonderful woman named Michaela who was deaf, who said, you know, I felt sorry for the people that could hear because when the band went off stage, everybody stopped partying and dancing and we just kept going. So they actually talk about a reversal. Like they actually felt sorry. Right. They were like, this is amazing. It's music. So, so that for us was this massive revelation of how, how neuroplastic the brain is or, or how plastic the brain is. And how you can figure out, the brain can figure out how to interpret different things and do different things and receive different things just because it's not the pattern that we were kind of maybe created in the way that was originally created. It doesn't mean that that's the only path. And so how does that invention affect your friend who lost the sense of smell? Uh, well, he got a sense of smell back, right? Uh, so, is, did you get it back for him? Or? I didn't get it back no. for him. No, was, he, his brain healed. That's the beautiful thing about the brain. The brain's mm -hmm. able to to kind of repair itself. So, he got a sense of smell back. But and that was also a long time ago. So, what this means for us is there's now not only, and that's kind of the the end of the story is we the deaf community went crazy about this thing, but then we didn't know that many deaf people, so we started trying it out on people who weren't deaf and if if i put this on you right now it totally changes the experience of music like for you this would completely like enhance it it would actually make the music louder i'm gonna close that window really quick okay we got uh car alarm going in the background we'll see if uh that abates over time and not in venice not in venice <laughs> makes sense He's, this is an amazing place here, under construction, but full of ideas. <laughs> Bursting with ideas. All right, let's see if that, let's see how that does. So, uh, so we started taking it out to people who could hear. And the crazy thing about it is we took it out to people who could hear, like this guy. And... We we took it out to Pharrell, and this is what, this is <laughs> Pharrell, yeah, and this is what Pharrell said. All right, you just experienced music not impossible for the first time. What did it What did it do to the whole music experience for you? I uh, I felt the future. I felt um, I I felt like I know what it's gonna be like when in the future when people um, are offered music, they can do more than just hear it and see it. Like they can currently, but you know, if you don't have your hearing or your hearing is impaired, you're still going to be able to feel it. You're still going to be able to get a tactile kinesthetic experience. And um, I think it's, I think more than anything, I think I'm grateful that I got a chance to experience this because this is something, it's one of those things um, that 
you won't understand it until you experience it. And the other people will not understand what you're talking about until they experience it too. You know, every 10 years, something comes about like that. And this has taken a very long time, but you guys did it. Well, and so he said that and I was like, he, he and his friends and, and um, the people who were recording with him just had experienced this. And he said that. And, I'm, and I, I looked at Daniel next to me. I'm like, I think Ralph just said he felt the future. <laughs> you are the future. He was like, I knew that from the moment I met you. <laughs> well, let, let's take a little look back and how you became the future. Okay. Because uh, you grew up in, what was it, uh, Arizona? Uh -huh. I was born. I was born here. I was born in Long Beach, California. Right. And then uh, at the age of two, my mom and dad moved us out to Phoenix, Arizona. And like, so I grew up there till I was about 17, 18. And what did your mom and dad do that put you on the path to this being the future? Um, you know, I, I, they just raised, I think they just were great parents. Um, that we lived a very average middle class did life. They, did they want to help people? Well, that was just it. We lived a very average middle class life. You know, we lived in a track home in a in a middle class community. And how does it, that get to Pharrell saying you're the future? Well, I think this is it. I think that the thing is, is that you don't realize this until you're much older, right? But my mom and dad were very involved with charities and very much involved with philanthropy. And it wasn't like you know, they were investment bankers on Wall Street and they were involved with donating millions of dollars every year. They actually went out and started charities. They started, my mom and dad started the the first women's abuse shelter called My Sister's Place in, in um, Tempe, Arizona. They, my so dad, they were out like selling lemonade on the corner or baking cookies <laughs> and... No, no, my dad sat, like he, he, my dad was a mortgage broker and so he got involved with the cat, we know we grew up a Catholic family. And so he was involved with Catholic charities. And so he sat on the board of Catholic charities and helped them like figure out like how to run a charity, like a business so that a business, so that a charity could do more work and actually do more of the good that they wanted to do. And so there was this pragmatism that existed in my family. My mom was a hardcore Democrat. My dad was a hardcore Republican, but they were both very socially conscious about you know that. So my dad wanted to do things for a certain reason. My mom wanted to do things for a certain reason, but they were both still doing things for the right reasons, right? To do things to try to help people. And so I think that that impact on me is probably the deepest thing that I have felt that when I look back at the work that I'm doing with Not Impossible, I've just said, all right, well, that, that must be it. You know, that must be it. That, that kind of presentation of the dichotomy of good and what that could be and the rationale of why you want to do it, it all convened in the same place that, you know, it's kind of our responsibility to do good for our fellow man and woman. So where does that take you? You went to uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. I, well, I went to the Air Force Academy for two years. Right. And that was a learning experience, boy, let me tell you, right? Talk about getting the snot kicked out of you and having a lot of rigor and, and, and just, and it's a military school. So that was really formulative. Um, and then after two years, I, I played basketball. Picked up them. a surfboard. And went I moved to Santa Santa exactly. <laughs> <laughs> instead of moving to, what is it? You know, packed up the family, moved to Beverly Hills, that is. Instead of, no, I moved to Santa Barbara, waves, that is. So... <laughs> And and so 
that takes you on a path to a production company, correct? Yep. So I started when the I graduate, uh, I meet my girlfriend at the time, who's now the my wife of close to you know twenty four years and three kids. Okay, congrats! And, yeah, and we got married very very young, um, and we kind of had this path that took us about, and we ended up in Venice Beach, and I started working in the production and design business, did that for other people for a while, and then started my own thing, and then really you know fell in love with the art and design of production and so that's kind of what launched the Eblin group which was with my production company for many years and what was it that turned you from running a production company to trying to accomplish these impossible things well so i've thought a lot about that and the thing is is that there wasn't this you know, this clouds didn't part and this ray of light come down from above. And, you know, this voice from on high says, you know, this is what you must do. It was, I think it was a byproduct of my upbringing combined with the business of production. You make stuff that's impossible, possible all the time. Like, Give me an example. Someone calls you and says, we've got, we need to make a fully animated 30 second commercial, but we don't have that much time um, where we need this done and we need it done in three weeks. And it's going to be highly 3D. There's going to be a lot of rendering, a lot of compositing, a lot of animation. Can you do it? Right. And if you look at what the regular normal schedule would be for something like that, it could be not three weeks, it could be three months, it could be six months. And what you do as a production company, because it's a very competitive business, you you answer the phone and you're like, yeah, of course we can do that. You know, we'll figure it out. And they're like, you sure? Yeah, I got it. Don't worry. You hang up the phone and you hang up the phone. And you're like, oh shit, now I got to figure this out. Right. So you get used to training. You, you get, yeah, you get used to accepting these impossible challenges. And then you just figure, and, and no is not an option. Like you, it's it's always yes and yes and it might be more promised. Man, yep. man, that's really I, I just and made that connection. And keeping your word is you know the most the word is your word and your and your your you know reputation is the only thing that you have in life. And so when you say to someone I can do it, you better well pull it off because you one it's what you have to do, but two you're not going to get the phone call the next time right. if you don't come through. So you just figure out how to come and th- come through. So you know, you do whatever it takes. And then you figure out, I figured out how to, you know, outsource to other countries before people were doing that. I figured out how to run multiple teams, which is something that was fairly commonplace. You just have multiple teams running around the clock. You, you just, you just don't abide by the laws of nature. You just abide by whatever you need to do to get it done. And then lo and behold, and then you surround yourself with, with really talented, passionate people that are all, you know, kind of congealed around the same, vision about accomplishing whatever that impossible task is at the time it was nike commercials you know or or film trailers or things like that now it's the same principles of tackling these impossible challenges but rather than it being selling a you know some canvas and rubber for 150 bucks it's how do you build someone how do you build something for someone that's going to categorically change their life Okay, well, let's. You've done two earth shaking, at least two. At we've, least we've two. done we've done a lot more than two at this yeah. point. Yeah, those the, are the, the two thing that, is that there are two that 
The two that the two that we first talked about were the iWriter, right, which is the device that allowed the paralyzed graffiti artist to draw again for the first time using only his eyes. Give a little background on that. All right, so that that one we went. Um, you know, the short story on that is we happened to meet and be exposed to this incredible artist named Tempt. He's a he's a LA based graffiti artist, and learning about him we realized that he had been lying motionless in a bed for seven years unable to talk and unable to communicate my production company at the time uh was decided that we were going to make a donation to his charity and to his foundation and when we went to give him the check we just kind of give him a check and shake their hand and, and walk away we asked him what are you going to use the money for his father and brother and they said uh we just want to talk to our son again talk to our brother and i said wait a second, what do you mean? Like, I don't have anybody in my family with ALS, but doesn't everybody have access to a Stephen Hawking machine? Those devices that you move your eyes and it talks? And he said, no, that's not the way it works. You have to have insurance or money. And if we don't have that. And I said, well, then how do you guys talk? And they said, we talk through a piece of paper. We have a piece of paper. We run our finger along that paper and it's got letters on it. When our finger gets to a letter, my brother or my son blinks. And then we write that down and we repeat that over and over again. And that's how we communicate. To me, that was like, that was just asinine, right? That's, we're sitting right now in Venice Beach, 13 miles away in this city, in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is a city that has a GMP greater than most developing nations. There was a dude who was talking through a piece of paper when there was technology that existed that made it so he didn't have to do that. And so I said, that's ridiculous. That's preposterous. Let's change that. And so at that point, I committed to him. I said, one, we're going to get you a Stephen Hawking machine. But two, I kind of got taken up in the moment. I said, let's also make it so he can draw again. And they were like, you can do that? And I said, <laughs> of course. Of course. Three weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I just kicked into producer mode, right? And then they walked out and I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to pull this off, you know? <laughs> and so we went into action and we did it. And then, you know. It took, how, it took, it took a minute. You, how did you pull that off? I just started networking and talking to people. I didn't know. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You didn't know anything about eyes? You... It's called ocular recognition technology. I didn't even know those words existed. I didn't know if you put those three words together that it made a noun, right? But I just started to talk to people and hey, what do you know about this? Or do you know, research it? Da, da, da. And then one thing led to another, and I met these amazing guys. Names James named James Powderly and Evan Roth, who had a thing called Graffiti Research Lab. And one thing led to another. We fly them and all these, you know, hackers and programmers and engineers to our house. My wife and kids and I move out. They take over the house. We start to just kind of go crazy for a couple of weeks. And we came up with a thing called the iWriter, which was a cheap pair of sunglasses from the Venice Beach Boardwalk, a coat hanger that we duct taped around to the side, we bent it around, we then zip tied a web camera, we cracked open a web camera, zip tied a web camera to the front so it focused back on the pupil, wrote code so that as you plug that into your computer, that web camera that was supposed to just you know register an image, it would now register the pupil as the focal point and as the tracking point. So as you would move your eyes back and forth, that would move the cursor back and forth on the screen and that would draw. And so, and I'm, this is the this is the hyper condensed version of this, but we ended up that ended up taking it to to Temp's room on a on a dark and stormy night in Los Angeles, and he drew again for the first time in seven years with all his friends and family and everybody witnessing it. What was that like watching that? 
I've got three kids. It's right up there with the birth of my kids. Wow. You know, like this is someone who it's a Lazarus story. Someone who was dead. Someone who's someone's passion had been ripped away from them by this horrible disease. And we were able to empower them to get that back again. And, and the it, crazy thing is when we came back, like we, we did it and everybody was cheering and we went out and celebrated afterwards. And when we came back the next day, uh, Temp's eyes were bloodshot and swollen because he wouldn't stop doing it. It was like a kid with a new toy. Oh, just eating ice cream. <laughs> he was like, it was all you can eat. And he, he was just like, <laughs> he's like, I'm not going to stop doing this. Now in your backyard, you were showing me a crate. Yeah with a piece of sculpture yep. in it. It's a huge crate yep. that he sculpted. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to give him the ability to express himself. And as an artist, and you think about it, you know, you're a writer. Imagine lying in a bed for seven years, the, the stories that you would come up with that you would want to write. Oh, right? man. And then imagine the torture of not being able to, to express those. Uh. So this guy was like a volcano of ideas. And one of the ideas that came out, he was talking to his good friend, um, uh, Angst. And he said, uh, you know, I have this idea that this, I want to do this. And, and basically he talked about the letters and how the letters would overlap and protrude, but they would be physical letters. And so he and Angst and this group of people, basically he, we mapped, he drew the letters and then we worked with a sculpture, a sculptor, and we were able to make those. And um at the uh the there was a, a curating team at the pasadena museum of california art and they had a graffiti exhibition and his art was one of these pieces and there was incredible art on the wall but everybody that came by his piece this sculpture was just like what the hell and no one knew nobody nobody said oh look at that piece of art that the paralyzed guy did everybody just said Oh my lord look at this thing this thing is incredible and then as they delved in they they would learn eventually that he was you know it had als and it made it even more respect for the work time for a break from our sponsors let's start with squarespace if passion sparks your next business i suggest you go to squarespace to create a website for it your photos are going to pop your messaging is going to be crystal clear. And hey, I am not reading ad copy here. I'm speaking from the heart. Speaking from experience. CalFussman.com is powered by Squarespace. And every time I look at my email and see an incoming message from Squarespace, a smile comes to my face. That's because I know someone is sending me a photo of the town or city where they listen to big questions. Squarespace is my bridge to the world. Make it yours by going to squarespace.com and typing in the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N. That will get you a 10% discount on a new website or domain name. So go after your dreams with Squarespace. And ZipRecruiter. If you need to hire, this is your lucky day. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and it'll feel like Christmas. That's because you'll have a gift on me, a free trial. All you got to do is type in your job description, and then with a single click, 
you'll have put ZipRecruiter's algorithms to work. Within 24 hours, you'll have qualified candidates. Sometimes you can type in that job description and make that click just before lunch. And when you return to your desk, you'll find those candidates. I know the people who created ZipRecruiter. I know people who work at ZipRecruiter. They're working hard to get you the talent you need. So go ahead, give it a shot. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. What does that do for you? Does that make you more outrageous in the possibilities of what you can do? Do you do you wake up wondering, okay, what now? So so that moment of figuring out that kind of the aggregate of those things that we were able to do with and for attempt, it it lit this fire in our bellies for us to really start to explore this whole concept of impossible. And here's the crazy ass thing about it. Okay, you're sitting right now in this dusty room with a bunch of stuff around, right? So just do like a 180 with your head right now. All right. Every single thing you see in this room from computer screens to a microphone to a recorder to a wristwatch to glasses that you're looking through, every single one of those things at one point was impossible. Didn't exist. Microphones didn't exist at one point. Glasses didn't exist at one point. Hats didn't exist at one point. The obvious thing are cell phones and monitors. Those didn't exist. And then what happened? One day along the way, the sum total of experience and, and need and invention and technology made it so that, oh, we've got a way to record voices now. We've got a microphone and we're able to record it and then play it back. And when that happened the first time, People lost their minds. Like, that was, oh my God, this is crazy. People thought it was, you know, you, you're capturing the soul or, you know, this is the devil's work or whatever it is. And then now it's commonplace. You don't ever think about, when was the last time one of your podcasts, you got it out and you just sat there in amazed, looked at the microphone. You, can you believe we can record voices? You don't even think about it. Oh, I, I think that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's amazing that I can get these wires <laughs> I don't take nothing for granted. Well, then you're a special I'm a case. Old school dude, man. <laughs> but that's the crazy thing is that every single thing that surrounds us at one point was impossible until that's, when? Until someone made it point, possible. That's right. So, right. remember the SATs? Remember the SATs? The inverse logic. So, if everything that's possible today was impossible first, that means that everything that's impossible today, everything that's impossible today, if you base it on history, the statistics and the data of history means everything that's impossible today is on the trajectory of becoming what? Possible. possible. Wow. It must seem impossible to the Sudanese kids who are getting those arms. It, it absolutely. The first time we 3D printed arms in Sudan and made the arms for this young boy named Daniel people gathered around and they thought that it was a magic maker, right? They were like, what this is, they've never, I mean, 3D printing still makes me amazed, right? And and I live, we live here in LA. Well, do the setup. Well, well, here's, here's the thing. And now they don't think twice about it, right? Oh, not another arm, hey. 
But that's that's Joe, the crazy thing. On, that's over. the crazy thing about life is that the second you do something and you transition okay. it from impossible to possible, it, it becomes all of a sudden normal. It becomes normal. Yeah, yeah. And so is that like, are we complacent? No, no. We just are are this just forward progressive species that constantly grows. And so if you think about who we are as a species from the standpoint of well, great. If we've been able to accomplish all these crazy impossibilities, then if you know that if you look at the horizon and say, look at all of these things that are impossible right now, look at, you know, the hyperloop, which now people are like, what, you can't get to San Francisco to LA in 30 minutes. That's crazy. People are like, yeah, it'll be, it'll be done in a couple of years. Like then it, like, it, it was crazy for the first couple of months. Now people are like, it's no fun. You can't cure cancer. We've cured all kinds of cancers now. You can't cure this. You can't have robotics. Now, Every single thing that you think about in the future, teleportation, come on, that's science fiction. That's never going to happen. Really? Because look at all the things that are surrounding us right now. They thought that was crazy ass science fiction. And we don't think twice about it now. To me, that's the optimism of humanity. That's the optimism of the future is that it might not happen in our lifetime. It might not happen in our kids' lifetime, but it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's that that changes the perspective of how you see the world. So the word impossible to you, and I, I'm going to ask you to just tell the story about Daniel. Okay. Uh, very briefly, you, just, just so people get an idea of how you got attached to it and what eventually happened. But before you get into that, your definition of the word impossible. Impossible is a fallacy. Impossible is a temporary state of being. It is a temporary state of being that is begging, yearning, and inevitably going to transition from impossible to possible. And there's nothing, there's no God you pray to, there's no color your skin, there's no nothing that you can do that can argue against that. It's just a principle of, it's just a scientific, historical, statistical principle. Okay, do a little recap on the story of Daniel, and then I really want to take this to what you're going to be cooking. All right. So, uh, we the iRider happens, it takes off, it goes, you know, all these crazy, we just do this one thing to help this one guy, and it goes bigger than anything we'd ever imagined, Right. We, we ended up winning Time Magazine's top 50 inventions of the year. We ended up, it's now part of the permanent collection at the moment in New York. It's one thing after another after another. And that led to the creation of Not Impossible. And so we're kind of now cruising along, you know, with this. It's kind of like a 16-year-old just got his license driving like this super fast muscle car. Like we, we were like, <laughs> wow, we got this, we got this ability to do stuff, but we don't know what to do with it. And then one day I read an article about this young boy named Daniel, who uh, actually, I read an article about a doctor in Sudan, in specifically in the Nuba Mountains, who his name was Dr. Tom Katana. And he was based in the Nuba Mountains. And he was a naval surgeon who became a missionary doctor. And he was this badass doctor who was just helping people. He was just like, he was like a Mother Teresa, Florence Nightingale, kind of just amazing guy. And the story went on to talk about how the one thing he hates to do is to perform amputations, right? Now he does everything. He's the, do he's the only doctor. So he has to do everything. But one thing he hates to do is to perform amputations. Makes me say, why is this guy performing amputations? So I dig in a little bit. And what I learned is that President Bashir, the current reigning president of Sudan, 
constantly bombs the people of the Nuba Mountains with these crude Molotov cocktail, you know, concoctions, 55 gallon drums filled with jet fuel and shrapnel. They hit the ground, they blow, they blow shrapnel everywhere, kills you or maims you. And I'm reading this and I'm like, whoa, this is intense. And, and it goes on to tell this one story about this young boy named Daniel who was out tending his family's goats and cows. He hears the bombers coming and they come every day. He looks around for a foxhole to jump into or a cave or a rock or something to get behind it to, to protect him. He can't find anything, so he sees a tree. He runs over, he wraps his arms around a tree. The bomb goes off not far from where he was. The tree protects his body from the blast, but because his arms were around the other side, it blows off his arms. And to me, that was the this this moment when I saw that, and that's the image that I saw right there. Oh man, this, you, you got to send that to me because when people are listening to this, I'll create a space so they could see this okay. photo. So, so and there's you know, basically yeah, this, there's Doctor Tom. You know what I mean? Yeah. This incredible doctor and all the work that he does, and. So then I get I see this image, right? And it's a basically a, a boy on his back with two large white bandages where his arms it's hard to tell if he's got elbows. He does not have an elbow on his right arm and he has a, a small stump on his left arm. Okay. And and what happens at that point? Uh, for me, I you know, everything we do at Non Impossible is based on recognize what we call the recognition of the absurd. And I, the same way when I saw Tempt and I, I heard the fact that this guy had been lying motionless in a bed and wasn't able to communicate, I said, that's absurd. Let's change it. And, and this is interesting because you know that prosthetics exist. Mm -hmm. It's just not where Daniel lives. Exactly. And so... Our process is to see something that's absurd, say, that's absurd, that has to change. And then what we do is this thing that's called, that I didn't, we didn't have a name for this at first, but now we have it. It's called commit and then figure it out. And so that's what I did with the iWriter. And that's what I did with Daniel, which is I saw that image and I read that story and I went, that's absurd. This, this boy, when he woke up and recognized that he was now a double amputee, the first thing he said was, if I could die, I would. And then he said, because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. What what 12 year old boy wakes up, realizes he's a double amputee and says he wants to die because he doesn't want to be a pain in the ass to his mom and dad. And so for me, that was this kick in the gut where I was like, all right, I don't know what, I don't know how, but commit and figure it out. So I I'm said, in. I'm in, I'm going to do something. So <laughs> Nick is in. <laughs> I'm like, all right, here we go. You know, and I started to research and I started to go through the process. I said, this is crazy. So I started to invite a bunch of crazy ass people to my house. The same thing we did with the iWriter. My kids are like, all right, here we go. We got to move out of our house again. You know, my wife and kids, we move out. All these guys take over. We start to hack and we start to program and we start to go through this whole process and of creating certain things and researching and coming up with different ideas. And we had read a story about a guy who actually cut his fingers off and couldn't afford to uh, prosthetics. So he 3D printed fingers for himself. And we were like, remember uh, Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? Yeah. <laughs> that was our aha. And so we're like, all right, well, let's, let's make arms. Let's 3D print arms. So we started to experiment with that. We ended up flying that carpenter out 
he, you know, mentored us and kind of helped us out. We came up, nothing went right. Everything went wrong. We just failed, failed, failed. But we every like we just got a little further down the, the line and then something would work. And and uh, eventually I was able to get uh, Intel to give us a couple bucks. And I took a bunch of laptops and printers and spools of plastic and uh, a, a camera guy, uh, two camera guys over to record this thing so that we can come back and show the world what, what, what possibly could be done. We didn't know if it was gonna happen. Um, and we got over there and um, again, everything went wrong. We got, we partnered with the SPLA, the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, which is the, the you know, the rebel force in South Sudan. They were going to give a safe passage up to Dr. Tom in the Nuba Mountains through these 10 different checkpoints so we could get to him. Um, we got shut down when they wouldn't let us get up there. So because the ceasefire had ended. And so we had to stay in the, in the refugee camp. Luckily, one of the local NGOs took us under their wing and said, hey, if you guys want to stay with us. We have this old shed in the back. You can turn that into your workshop. We said, absolutely. So we started going through the process of, of setting everything up and, um, you know, eventually got to the point that's the shed right there in the back um, and got the shed set up to be our workshop. And then guess who showed up? Day one, Daniel, the boy who had both of his arms blown off. They had told us a couple, like a month before that they had found him. And we were like, don't lose him. He's the inspiration. He's our one that we want to try to help. So he would show up every day and we would go through the process of, of helping him make these arms or helping like, like forming on we, I was making it for him and how it would work and the ergonomics of the whole thing and everything went wrong. How it, long, it, it was so, it how was, long was this going on? For? Um, by the time that I landed well, that's the crazy thing about this. So the punchline on this whole thing is everything went wrong. The printers would malfunction because it was so hot that the printers were malfunctioning. Things were melting to themselves when they shouldn't melt. One thing led to another. But uh, Daniel would show up every single day and his thing was like, what's up, bald guy? Where's my arm? You know? <laughs> Like he didn't care how hot What's it was. Up, bald guy, where's my arm? He he was like, look, you said you're gonna come do it. You you said you're gonna do it. Let's do it. And I didn't speak Arabic. He didn't speak English. So how do I explain to someone like, hey, you know your country's really hot and my printers aren't working. You know, it was like we had to figure out. So we ended up printing at night. We would send off all of our prints at night, and we just kind of figured it out. You know, it's like goes back to the production story. Like you just figure out wow. what you need to do. And so the the punchline on this whole thing is. On November 11th, which was exactly and precisely four months to the day that I first read that story about Dr. Tom and Daniel, Daniel fed himself for the first time with an arm that I had built with him in a refugee camp. Four months. They said that they, they were, there were people who were trying to come in and do prosthetic work and different, you know, like big UN foundations and big NGOs coming in. But as you can imagine, they were bureaucratic. It took time. There was logistics. We come in as a team of basically one, and we were able to do this. And that, for me, is it's a it's a testimony to the fact that you know the Margaret Mead quote: "Never doubt that a few caring people can't change the world. Indeed, that's all who ever have." 
So we were able to prove that you don't need to wait for bureaucracies. You don't need to wait for permission. You don't need to wait for governments or education or degrees or diplomas. Two weeks before I made that arm for him, I did not know how to make an arm. I ended up getting trained how to make an arm, but I knew that I knew that my 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 test was coming up. I knew I was going to be in a refugee camp and I damn well wasn't going to have any support. So I just it's like cramming for a test. I was like, I got to learn how to do this now. And so I just stayed up all night and worked with with Richard, the guy that trained me, who took me on as his apprentice. And, and we just did whatever it took. And by the time I got there, you know, I could kind of do it. But then you get dropped into the into the situation and you're like, look, there's nobody here to help me. I got to do this. So we just did it. We just figured it out. And then this boy was able to feed himself again. Okay. And that is a great launching pad for where this is all going because I'm sitting in your first home after you're married, which you're now converting into an office. It's in a state of disrepair and dust and disarray and that's that's a very nice way of putting it <laughs> and here's the thing i'm wondering what is going to come out of this place what babies are going to be born here um the beautiful thing about it is that we've now gotten to a point at not impossible is that we realize that what we're doing is not a fluke we realize that we've got a superpower and we are now wielding that superpower in pretty meaningful ways. So we are doing everything we can to what we call non-impossible is a movement. We call it a movement. It's a business. It's a, you know, we we're we're all it's funny. I can go off on this whole tangent on for-profit versus non-profit. We're a for-profit company because I don't believe that a government regulation and tax code should guide or gauge whether or not you can and can't do good in the world. In fact, I would even say you can do more good in the world if you're for-profit, if you just have your ideals and values right, because then you can actually invest and make things and do things more. And you don't have to wait for people to throw a couple shekels into your tin cup. So much of this is coming back to the production company where you got to get it done in order to survive. Yep. And so we figure it out. So we're, we're committing and figure it out. So our thing right now is we are doing, we've launched something called the absurdity project and we are going through. And for a while we were just tackling the absurdities that we saw And now we're starting to crowdsource those absurdities. So, you know, I know what I know, but I don't know what you know. And for the people that are listening, they don't know. I don't know what they what they know. So things that are absurd to me. What if I knew what was absurd for more people? What if we had that perspective? And once you crowdsource those absurdities, then you can start to say like, wait a second, I can totally solve that. I'm just going to duct tape a couple microphones together and put it on the, you know, da, 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 da. And now you've got something or wait a second, I can solve that. And now we can start to categorically, systematically put things into this pipeline of solving absurdities and changing the world. Our mission statement is change the world through technology and story. So if we know the stories of what's absurd, then we can use the technology and the crazy kind of mad hatter, mad scientist approach that we have 
to, to change that. And then we tell the story about what we've created. And then that spreads far and wide. And Cal puts it on his podcast. And now millions of other people find out about it. And now more people can be helped. So that's the cycle of what we're doing is we're systematically going through and solving these absurdities. But by taking on and evaluating what's absurd for other people, and then having those people identify what's the one person that if we can solve an absurdity for their, what, who's, what's absurd for you, Cal? And what's if we could change the life of one person in your life that has something that you consider to be absurd, who would that be? If we jump on that, if we attack that, if we dogpile that, we solve it, and then we tell that story, how many people do you think are going to be affected by that story and who probably share that same absurdity? And that's how you create scale for change. If only I could do Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, you're going to reach out to millions of people and ask them, what do you think is absurd? Knowing that there are going to be a million people who can look at that and say, no, that's not absurd. We can solve that. That's our vision. That's our vision. We're doing it right now. Little by little by little. We're expanding kind of our, our focus group, if you will of, you know, uh, surveying 200 people here, 1,000 people there, 2,500 people there. We're going to these pockets of, of companies or people that, that know not impossible and like, hey, let's do something together. But the big vision is that this becomes something that is just way, way bigger and that we create this crowdsource solution platform that solves absurdities for people. So what you've done in these isolated cases can become an everyday thing? Well, that's the vision. The vision on this is our vision is, is called help one, help many. You solve for one person, you tell the story of one person, but in doing so, it solves it and helps many people. Well, how could people jump aboard? How could they help you? I mean, there's lots of ways, right? Um, promote the story of non-impossible. Tell people about what we're doing because for us, it's more about a, a, a way of thinking if people, if, imagine if everyone in this world thought, wait a second, nothing's impossible. It's just impossible right now. It's just a, te- it's a temporary state of being. Imagine how the world would change, you know? So we, we do everything. From we, we host, uh, we started to host an award show where we, we honor other people who are making things not impossible. Because it's not just about us. It's about other people. We launched a podcast to tell the stories of other people that are doing this, you know? So a podcast, not impossible. We... Are, are out there promoting this concept because that's how you're going to make change, right? And then in that, as more people find out about who we are as a movement, then more people want to come work with us. And we love working with companies because companies have these massive amplification budgets to take stories and put it across all of the channels, TV and 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 the web and social media. and, and all that. Well, that's great because more people that know about the story, more people can be helped. So we end up partnering with partnering with corporations to do that, and we partner with individuals. And so, if you're a mad scientist, if you're a company, if you're someone with an absurdity, yeah, reach out to us. So, is there a single, like, three minute sizzle reel that explains this visually for everybody, or do no? You can or should to- I say to you, you know what? This podcast is running next Tuesday. You got a week <laughs> to deliver to me a sizzle reel. If you go that explains what you want to do, I'll put it up on my website. Deal. We'll be good to go. We actually didn't, it's not even a reel. It's a simple, it's a simple graphic that's on our website that you can see kind of our system. And you, and 
it's rather than us telling you how we do it, we just show you the things that we've done. Well, and, that, that's what I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, and so you see Project Daniel, you see the iWriter, you see some of these crazy ass things that we've tackled. And if you remember, the people that did that weren't PhDs and MDs and people who went to school for 20 years. These are just regular people who are trying to solve real problems. Then that is the story of, of who we are. You know, a guy from Scotland texted me today. And these are the kind of texts I get. People just send me questions. They're like, what do you think of this question? And the question was, if you could go far into the future or any distance into the future, how far would you go and what would you see? If I ask those questions to you, huh. and I'll ask them one at a time because I never like to double barrel a question. I always like it to be focused on individually. So how far ahead would you like to go? That's a great question. That's a wonderful Simon question. of Scotland, you did it. You did it. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a part of me that says, that says that's, I love the present, you know, and I love the present challenge of the problems that we have to solve now. I would love to go. So actually to you, you don't want to see it all solved because then you say, oh, okay. If, you, you like the actual I, solving. I like the solving part. That's the fun part, man. You know, okay. it's kind of like, it's kind of like if you could, if you had, if you could time travel on your birthday, would you go to the end of your birthday party, or would you want to celebrate your birthday and have all your friends over and have a big dinner? That's, no, you want to go through the birthday party. That's the fun part, right, right? Right. So I love the concept of looking out into the future, and I would love, as I'm doing my my proverbial you know word puzzle or my crossword, to get some hints from the future of like, oh well, that's the word that I'm looking for. That's the solution. Or if you match those two things together, you could do it. But it's fun trying to get there. It's I, I like I really I really truly enjoy the journey. So I don't have a desire to to have a spoiler alert and get ahead and have someone tell me how it's all going to be done because, man, you know, here's a perfect example. We led this whole podcast. This is there's a perfect way to like tie it all together. We started this podcast telling the story of how we were able to have the deaf create a way for the deaf to experience music. That's right. Guess what one of the accidental, the accidental outcomes of that was? One of the accidental outcomes is that we had this- And here Mick is going chief, to his computer. We had this, a guy that we call our, uh, our chief mad scientist, right? Uh, and he said, hey, you know, Mick, you know, we, we did that thing that allows everybody to experience music. Um, this is him right here. He's like, I have this theory. I read this thing. Oh, man. This, this guy looks like he's in a 1960s beauty parlor getting a beehive put on his head. But it's aluminum. With aluminum foil. Aluminum foil. Exactly. What's going on here? So he's actually working with different ways to um, to control a computer with your brain waves right now. Right? So he's he's actually talking to his computer yeah, yeah. through the aluminum he's register, foil. He's registering different, different ways. The aluminum foil is acting as a conductor for him. But so he said to me, send me those wristbands because this friend of mine has um, his father 
or her father has Parkinson's. Oh no. Or I should say, oh yes. Oh yes. And he's <laughs> like, he said, send him out to me because I want to put your wristband on. You can see in this video like how how difficult it is for this person to keep his arms to straight. Keep their arms straight, right? And so then we sent it out oh, to him. Oh man, we, look we at put that. It on, and look at that. He has complete control of his hand again. His, it stopped his Parkinson's tremor completely. It stopped his Parkinson's tremors completely. Oh man, if Muhammad Ali so could see created, that. So we created, we created a way to help the deaf experience music. And the deaf community loves it. And along the way, we accidentally created a way to solve Parkinson's tremors. So you asked me, do I want to see the future? Nah, I'm good. I'm good with this path that we're on right now because that accidental outcome in two short months, we're going to launch a solution that's a Parkinson's solution where the general public can go online and order these vibrating wristbands that we've created. And you can order them for your loved one or for anybody who has Parkinson's. And our the website's gonna say, rather than, you know, when you go to, you see pharmaceutical ads and it says, may cause hair loss, may cause, cause your ears to fall off, may cause your eyes to bleed, may cause all this. You know, these are all the side effects. Ours is gonna say, cause we can't tell, we can't say that it cures Parkinson's tremors. We're gonna say, it may cause your Parkinson's tremors to go away. It may cause you to, if you're elderly, to have improved balance. It may have these things. <laughs> and here's the beautiful thing. You can go on and order these things. And if they don't work, send them back to us. This isn't the, for us. This is just about helping people. And we just want to hear if it works. We want to hear the stories about it works because then it'll help other people. So that is how that's a perfect example of how technology is going to change the world. You are a beautiful man, Meg. It's a pleasure to know you. There's only one bad thing about you. You ready? Oh, no. What is it? I, I can leave here, right? And I can't think to myself, no, Cal, you can't solve that problem. No. Nope. Whatever problems I have, I just have to say, hey, Mick can find a solution. No, actually, I totally disagree with you. What you should say is Cal can find a solution. My job on this planet is not to solve the problems. My job is to remind you that if I can solve the problems, that you can solve the problems and that anyone can solve the problems. I don't have any degrees or any special diplomas that allow me to do this. So you might not have the muscle memory that I have right now, but you certainly, most certainly could be taught to do that or just get the gumption or the bravery to say, I'm just going to go for it and commit and figure it out. And guess what? You'd figure it out. So it's not that Mick could figure this out. It's that I want you to walk away and say, Mick's doing some pretty cool stuff, but Mick also reminded me that I could go do that kind of stuff too. Cheers, brother. That's beautiful. Time to wrap it up. I guess the takeaway this week is to throw your life into your passion because you'll never be able to do the impossible if you're not passionate about it. Sort of like that Norman Vincent Peale quote, throw your heart over the fence and the rest will follow. 
Thank you, Mick, for that reminder. I want to thank Tim Ferriss, as always, for pushing me to start this podcast. If you reach out to me about this device to stop a trembling hand, it'll be because Tim showed me how to get the message out to you. I want to also thank Philip Lanos for the work he does bringing this podcast to you, and Justin Weniger, Tony Shea, Will Barker, and everybody else connected with the Life is Beautiful Festival in downtown Las Vegas for making my first meeting with Mick Ebeling possible. Thanks to Squarespace and ZipRecruiter for the support to bring these conversations to you. And thanks to you for listening all around the world. If you're up to it, I'd be very grateful if you'd send me a photo of the city or town where you listen to big questions. People are listening as far off as Mongolia. And these photos enable me to visualize where this journey has taken me. Only nobody from Mongolia has sent one to me yet. Please do. The journey continues next week with a look at one of the greatest achievements I've ever seen. It's highly inspirational. Subscribe and you won't miss it. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.